the point where I, I always talked about where Peter Elliott, who was on the BBC camera bike at the time, dropped back from the lead vehicle and just shouted across to me, Gary says if you pick it up, you can run 216. Well, anybody who's like two miles to go in a marathon knows that you can't really pick it up, you're going as hard as you can. So I replayed in my mind, I think, a fair bit of um, retorts back to Gary at that point, but it did also give me a, a psychological boost because I knew, or I thought I'd worked out in my head, but you never know if your brain's functioning properly at that stage in the marathon. Uh, and I was fairly confident I was somewhere around 2.16, but to hear that and to know that I was going to comfortably be inside the world record, that helped me get through that last mile. That's the voice of marathon running legend Paula Radcliffe in this super special 90-minute episode of How to Wow, during which Paula gives us an amazing insight into how she broke away from the school's mid-pack to become the best in the world, while lavishing us with training tip after training tip all along the way throughout the conversation. This is Running Gold, and it's all yours, my friends, and it's brought to you by my new book, 119 Days to Go, How to Train for and Smash Your First Marathon. Simply pick up a copy, choose a marathon or make up your own. Turn to day one and get started. It really is as simple as that. And then 119 days later, you will be locked and loaded on the start line and raring to go. Remember, when it comes to running a marathon, it's not about crossing the line, but having the guts, commitment and determination to make it to that start line. 119 days to go. How to train for and smash your first marathon is out now. Plus, this episode is also sponsored by our friends at Better You. Although nutrition helps to fuel exercise and optimise runners' recovery time, it isn't always enough to meet the high demands of training. And that's where magnesium and Better You can help. A powerhouse mineral, magnesium not only provides effective, natural relief from aching and tense muscles, but its role in muscle contraction, skeletal strength and energy production helps our bodies to sustain the high oxygen consumption necessary for athletic performance at any level including yours and mine. So, whether you're a professional athlete or just a casual gym goer, transdermal magnesium can help you to train harder, perform better and recover faster. For those who exercise regularly, magnesium can help to reduce unnecessary stress on our joints by encouraging the body to absorb calcium and preventing calcification in the muscles and soft tissues, which helps the body to maintain flexibility and movement. Better you. Magnesium body sprays can be used before, during and after exercise for a quick top-up of this important mineral. Better use range of magnesium body sprays, bath flakes and lotions delivers this essential nutrient to your body where you need it most. How to wow listeners, that's you guys, can receive 20% off the magnesium range by visiting betteryou.com slash wow. That's betteryou.com slash wow and entering the code wow at the checkout. Okay, wherever you're listening to this, but especially if you're out running, please enjoy my conversation with the truly inspirational superwoman that is Paula Radcliffe. Paula, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic and all the better for talking to you, Paula, one of my favourite human beings that's ever been born. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> No, I mean it. How are you? I'm great. Are you over in French France? I'm in Monaco. Yeah, I'm at home. Okay. How has lockdown been for you? Um, yeah, it's, I think it's been it's been challenging. It's been challenging for everyone. Uh, it was tough because I lost my dad in April last year, right in the beginning, and then um, we had to manage Isla um, being diagnosed with with cancer in September too, and kind of everything that that entailed. 
in a lockdown situation, um, which in some ways made it easier and in some ways made it harder. Um, and then I think also just the challenges of, of children just not being able to have their, their normal environment. Um, so we've been fairly lucky in that schools have mostly stayed on, but the normal sports clubs, get togethers, even just sport in the school environment hasn't been able to happen. And how is Isla doing? She's doing very well. She's, um, we actually go back for the first of the three month checkups next week. Um, but she's readjusting back to back to life at school uh, and kind of overcoming, I guess, the, the difficulties there, which are mostly concentration and lapses in concentration, as well as catching up on all the schoolwork as well. But she's handling it very, very well. And it's just kind of at the minute, just one week at a time and just getting through each one. And you talked about your dad there as well. Alice, she loves her running. You obviously you quite like your running, which is why I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, but it all began with your dad. Now, famously, you always reply to a question that I am sort of I sort of don't want to ask, which was, you know, you always say, I can't remember really when I started running. So I'm not going to ask you that. I know. But I'm going to well, ask you this. I can't remember when I wasn't. <laughs> I see. Because it's funny, isn't it? So when did when did you realise you loved running then, as opposed to when did you start running that you can't remember? Um, I think it was a really gradual process. I think the first time you really realise and appreciate how much you love it is when you can't do it. So it's the first time that you get an injury or something that, that stops you doing it. Or I guess for the kids going through it now, the first time that they hit that time in the pandemic where they couldn't go uh, and, and take part in their sports... Um, but for me, it was my first injury, which came at the time. The first big injury that I can remember was a couple of weeks before the English Schools Championships. Um, so then it, it seemed like a massive big deal. It was actually quite a small injury. And luckily, a local physio um, that my mum and dad got me to got me over that. And I was able to to get to those English Schools Championships. But it's then, I think, when something's taken away from you that you realise how important it really is. Yeah, and you know, again, echoing the last year for the whole wide world, you're absolutely spot on. How old were you then, do you think? Um, I would have been about 13, 14, probably right. about 14 then. Okay, because I've heard you wax on wax lyrical about the fact you love running, uh, you know, and you do remember around around the age of ten or eleven, particularly thinking, you know, this this is something that sets me free. I feel alive. You know, yeah. I could I could run forever in the the woods and the forest near you, near where you were you were born and brought up. So, um, so it sort of pretty much kicked in then. When did you? What was the year that you watched your dad for the first time in the London Marathon? Uh, so the first time. I think he ran at 84, 85 and 87, but I was definitely there in 1985 when Ingrid Christensen set the, the world record. Right. And you saw you saw her run past, didn't you? Yes, I did. We went we obviously went down with my mom and we were going to different points along the route to to hand my dad um, refreshments then. So like a little carton of orange juice and a mini Mars bar. Um, and we were waiting for him to come by. And we must have got to that one particularly early because she was a fair way ahead of my dad. Um, and I just remember seeing her <laughs> run past and just being so in awe of of the power and speed and just how far up in the race she was because then it was a mixed race and a mixed start. Mm. So she was, it felt to me as though she was up with the leading men. I mean, she was obviously a little bit behind them, but um, she was really running up, up amongst a lot of the, the elite men, certainly the elite club runners. Uh, and I think even then, I was only, what, 11 it really impressed on me the atmosphere of London and just how just how magical it was. I mean, you know, when you take part in it, but even for the spectators, I think you pick up on that buzz. Um, and so I'd made a pact then that I would run it with my dad. 
We right. never actually managed to do it, but we run the same one, but not at the same time. Because then as soon as I was old enough, I was too busy, I guess, competing in in um, my own international races over shorter distances on the track and across country. So running a marathon at 18 didn't fit in. And then by the time that I was running marathons, my dad wasn't able to do that because he had a knee injury. Right. Um, Ingrid Christensen, though, the first time you saw her, you know, knowing now what we know of you and your innate talent and also all the hard work you did, we'll talk about that later, um, because, you know, you, you weren't, necessarily born head and shoulders or knees, thighs, uh, feet and ankles above uh, the rest of the field. But what did you see in her? Was she, did she run differently? Was there something about her? Um, I think it was, I mean, this is why, I mean, we always wonder, don't we, why do we pick, why do we pick idols? Why yeah. do we choose uh, those people to inspire us? Uh, and I would say that for me in running, I mean, outside of that, my grandma, my dad, my parents are huge inspirations to me. Um, but um, in within running, it's three ladies and it's Ingrid Christensen, Greta Weitz and Joan Benoit Samuelson. And for all three of them, it, it's more also the people they are. Um, but obviously at that age, in age 11, when I watched, I didn't have a clue who Ingrid was and I didn't know what a great person she was and how helpful she would be to me later in life when I moved to the marathon. Um, but it was it was then I think it was the power and the strength that that inspired me. And I think that's why I know my grandma uh, and my family as as inspirations for me, because I was never brought up to think that a woman couldn't do something just because she was a woman. And all of my role models around me growing up were just if you don't do something the first time. My grandma was a big person for if you don't achieve the first time, you keep trying, you try another way, you keep persevering and you keep working towards what you want. Um, and I think Ingrid really symbolised that for me that day. She was nothing was getting in her way that day. That yeah. world record was going down, um, but in a nice way. She wasn't bashing everyone out of her way. It was just a powerful, <laughs> strong way. And I think that's what resonated with me. Oh, it's so cool to hear you talk about her because I've been watching you a lot over the last forty-eight hours in prep for the interview. And um, you know, oh, no. no, seriously, I have. And Tasha and I, we've just been re-watching you enter entering certain stadiums when you when you turn the corner and you entered Helsinki in the stadium there, the speed and you're flying and we're thinking, how is she doing this after all? You know, she's she's been, she's ran miles already. And Ta you know, Tash, you know my wife, you know her well. Yeah. You know, and she's, she's, yeah, a really well. she's a pretty fierce amateur athlete. And she's thinking, I couldn't sprint for 100 metres as fast as Paula is running at the end of a marathon. I mean, it's quite incredible. Yeah, but I think it's the psychological things being pulled into it as well. That, I mean... Uh, that was actually off the back of, of the disaster that had happened in Athens the year before. So I think for everything to, to kind of come together and run as I knew I should have been capable of doing in Athens um, and to for the race to go according to plan. And then there's a huge amount of relief as well. Whatever level you're running a marathon at, when you see the finish line, everybody finds a little bit more energy to, to, to finish faster there. Um, but it's funny when you talk about Helsinki because I actually had um, a neuroma building in my foot then. And when everyone watches that video, no one sees anything except my husband, who said you were limping. He said you were limping for the whole last 10K. Um, and we didn't even know what it was until um, April of 2006, the neuroma flared up. See, that's so Gary, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just analysing every, every little yeah. bit. And he just said, no, no, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> it was the end of a marathon. Everybody's limping a little bit. But no, he was absolutely right. So let's talk. Let's talk about you running as a kid, um, and then in your early teens. You know, and famously, you 
you, you move further down south and then your dad does a recce of all the local amateur athletic associations and clubs and really sort of does some serious groundwork on your behalf. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because he knew well, we were moving for his job. Um, um, so I think he probably felt a little bit of if he was going to make it as good a move as possible for, for all of us. Um, and he knew how important the athletics club was and how much I enjoyed my running, even at that stage. Um, so he did a, a lot of research into the clubs in the local area to see which one was the best. And he found Bedford and County and he found Alec and Rosemary Stanton, who were um, my coaches, my real coaches all, all the way through my career. I guess they kind of just passed the baton on to, to Gary later. But everything that we, we carried on doing was was essentially modelled on what Alec and Rosemary do and still do now at Bedford and County. You know, and you've talked in the past a lot about that race where there were six, 600 odd in the field and you came 290, was it ninth? 299th, yeah, and there were 606, I think, in the in the minor girls race that year. Um, so I remember my dad saying to me afterwards, it was really good, you were in the first half of the field. And he was right, and, you know, you, you, you sort of took that on board and you were pretty pleased you beat another 307 uh, girls at the time. But, you know, finishing 299, you're thinking, OK, well, well done, fantastic, better than most of the rest of the world could do, but by, you know, that's 298 off first. So, you know, obviously you ha- you've had some innate talent, but the work you, you've, you had to do um, to, to get better and better and better must have been monumental. And so tell us about what talent you felt you had and what, how far you, you sense you might go with it then? Well, I think then I don't think I was even thinking about it. And what was important to me after that race was, I mean, obviously then it was, I was bottom year of the under 13 age group. So I had the next year I knew I was going to be the oldest year group in that, in that um, age group. So that was already going to be an advantage. And then in the week following that race, um, Alec actually came up to my mum and said um, he was putting together a, a team at Bedford County of under 13 girls with the name of, of winning the national cross-country title the next year, the team title. And he wanted to know if I would be able to come training twice a week instead of just once a week, so on a Tuesday and Thursday night. Um, and my mum turned around to him and said, well, don't ask me, it's, it's Paula's sport, ask her. So he came up to me to ask me, and I think the fact that he had the confidence and the belief in me that I could be good enough to be in the scoring team, because I hadn't been in the scoring team that day, um, was already a big confidence boost to me. And then to be part of the team, working all the way through that year towards that goal and then to achieve that goal. So a year later, I was fourth and I was the second scoring member of the team. And we did win the team title. So that was my first illustration of setting a goal, working hard towards a goal and achieving it and how the whole team is important in that. Um, And I think Alec always talked a lot about what is talent? Um, because he would say girls walk through the door to the club every day um, with a lot of talent, but unless they've got a talent to work hard and mm. to motivate themselves, they're not going to make it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what I had more than a natural talent. I just had a talent and an enjoyment, perverse enjoyment for just really hurting myself in training and pushing myself in training to be able to get the best out of myself in races. And there are also people that can raise their game when the pressure's on and they're in the race and people who train better than they race. And I was always lucky in that I was one of those people who raced better than I trained. Interesting. You know, I, I, I often talk about a similar thing. It's not so much talent. It's being blessed with the, the loving 
working gene. I love working, you know, and I, I used mm-hmm. to fit car windscreens. I was a news agent. Now I do this for a living. I, but I love working. And that's a blessing because people, some people just don't like it. They don't like the thought of it. And it's not because they're lazy. It just doesn't float their boat. And I suppose, is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that um, I just, I enjoyed the day-to-day work. I mean, we used to joke and say that when later on, when I was getting ready for marathons, um, Gary used to say, well, we're basically going away just to be shut in a cage and it's just a training cage to get ready for the marathon. But I actually liked that. I yeah. really enjoyed that where literally all my day was was training and then resting and recovering and training again. Um, but because we were together and we had our kind of own little support group around us there, I, I really enjoyed that kind of working towards a goal and just being away from any distractions and being able to, to keep my head down and work towards that. And I think it's important for anything that if you enjoy what you're doing, isn't it? I'm with you, Paula. Do you think it's more of a case of do what you love or love what you do? Because I used to think it was do what yes. you love, but I actually think now it's probably love what you do. Well, I think they both go together, though, don't they? I think I think they might. But I think <laughs> if you love what you do, you'll always be OK, because you might not always be yes. able to do what you love. Yeah, but you can turn it into doing what you love. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, sorry. I agree, <laughs> just, I agree with that. I just move things around. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny though, because, you know, I, I get up 3 30, uh, 4 o'clock latest, Monday to Friday. People say, what do you do that for? How can you keep carrying on doing that? I love it. I love driving into work. I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to my pals on Virgin. I love having having to read books, you know, like yours, having to watch documentaries about people like you. That's my job, to be interested in brilliant people doing brilliant things and then getting to talk to them about it. That's not work. No, exactly. I mean, that's that's what, what I think. I'm extremely lucky to have been able to to do what I did and what I'm doing now as well, because it's something that I really enjoy doing. And to be honest, if I'd worked in any career, I would have still been fitting a run in around it every day anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to be able to make that my career, um, it wasn't a job for me at all. Now, loads of people listen to this in their tens of thousands, if not millions, and will be preparing for the London Marathon 2021 and beyond, because this will be an evergreen podcast that just plays forever. And we'll get onto some super tips for training and sticking to your schedule in a moment or two. So don't worry, everyone. They, those are more than guaranteed to be on the way. But before that, going from 299th to fourth the next year between the ages of 12 13 and 14 obviously loads of hard work obviously loving parents obviously a really enthusiastic goal-setting grandma um and then there's your coaches <laughs> as well but what kind of things what kind of what kind of um training produces those that 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 ridiculously increment in um performance well i mean i think that age when, when kids are growing up it, it's not really to be honest, um, a huge amount of training that's been added. It's more learning the skills. And uh, it's one of the things that I'm very passionate about in that cross country is not about a distance per se. It's about learning the skills of racing cross country. And it's about being able to judge your effort over the length of the course that it is um, and to, to gauge your effort well so that you're all out at the end, but you've got enough energy to get up that final hill to negotiate that little bit of mud there. It's about choosing the right length of spikes. There's lots of things that, that come into to cross country. And I think especially when you're, um, what was I then, 12, going on to, to 13 the next year, there are a lot of things you're learning about judging your effort, pushing your body, um, being just racing skills. Um, and I think that was what was instrumental there. Yes, I was going training an extra night a week, 
uh, and we would mix up between reps on the track, reps on the grass, reps on the, the embankment in Bedford up and down. We used to do a lot of that. And, and then I think up to a five mile run was all that we did in distance. Um, but it was really just about racing and honing those racing skills. So we raced a lot as, as kids and uh, sometimes every, it would be twice every weekend, but certainly every weekend through the cross country season. Yeah, and of course, if you're racing, it's a game. You've gamified it because there's going to be winners and losers yeah. and you can overtake people. And it matters, I suppose. Absolutely. And it, I think this idea that you try and take protect kids from competition or you take competition away from them, it, it's completely wrong because kids are naturally competitive and that competitive spirit has to be challenged, channeled somewhere. Uh, and channeling it into sport is, is a great way. And it's one of the things I'm really passionate about through this pandemic. And that's why we've worked so hard with Families on Track and the 215 Challenge and things like that. But the children need to have that access to sport. And it's really important for their physical well-being, but for their health as well, for their mental health. Tell us about those two initiatives. Um, well, the Families on Track is an initiative that I'd been working on for a while. And then we launched at the Durham City Run Festival in 2019 uh, with Events of the North. Um, and the idea actually came from a, a local race that I did here in Monaco with Isla where she ran 3K and I ran 7K of a 10K race. And she said, it was so much fun running a relay with you, and why don't we make a family relay? So I started to think about the concept of an Ekiden. And then I realised that, of course, you can't abandon small kids along the road. <laughs> um, so we needed to develop some kind of um, relay out of a central area, like a, a pit lane area. We developed it with Steve uh, Kramer Extra Mile Events and his son Marcus was really instrumental in measuring out the, the course and we had loops of 250 metres, 500 metres and 1,000 metres and the family chose basically how they, they made up their 10k but the aim was that each family accomplished 10k together, not necessarily as a race because there's all different ages of kids but it was really just to get families spending that quality time together outside um, and enjoying it and it poured down with rain all day. Oh, and no. still, we had 100 families with big smiles on their faces. Oh, they good. all stayed out there. <laughs> and they all came up to the yeah, house. We were blown away by the enthusiasm of it because everyone was soaked to the skin. I mean, luckily, it was July, so it wasn't right. freezing at least. Um, but people saying, yeah, I haven't had the chance to run with my kids ever or I haven't run since I was at school. Um, but I just had so much fun. And when's the next one? So we, we had a great momentum building up. I know we were supposed to be coming uh, as part of RunFest and that still will be going ahead at some point. But sadly, the, the whole COVID pandemic kind of put everything on hold there. And then the 215 Challenge was just born over the um, previous uh, half term, February half term, where I was working with Berkshire schools uh, in the county of Berkshire just to, to get kids and families active over the half term week. So we just set them a challenge of accomplishing two hours 15 worth of exercise together and the only rider being there had to be at least two members of the family doing each activity so dad couldn't just go off on his bike for two hours and that was most of the challenge done <laughs> you had to do it together but we had some really really great families getting so involved grandma joining in with virtual yoga sessions um kids going off for miles on scooters um with their family building snowmen snowball fights it was just really really good Brilliant. 
Awesome. All right. Well, let's hope they uh, they come back as soon as they possibly can. So the 215 challenge, of course, um, obviously, uh, to those who know, would be um, in honour of 215-25, 2003, London 2003. April the 13th, as I recall, Paula, would that be right? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. April 13th. Right, let's talk about marathons then. Um, so let's talk about your first marathon. Now, I didn't know this until this week because I, I just didn't think it would be the case, but you won London 2002, right? I know that for a fact. Yes. Was that actually your first ever marathon? Yes, yeah, because I never go the full marathon distance in training. Um, and that was my first marathon, I think. Uh, some people do choose to have run one in training before, mm. but I figured um, with Alec, if you get to if you can get to twenty two <laughs> miles, twenty three miles, then you can absolutely manage to get through those last three miles on the day. Um, so yeah, I mean, I knew I was in great shape going into it, and I wanted to wait to mm. to run a marathon until I knew I was really ready to. So I didn't want to just do one just to see. I wanted to go in and run one well. See, that is so funny because that is the elite version of what we're all doing. You know, we don't run a marathon in training. We run 20, 20 miles, 22 miles. Some people only run 16 or 18. But it was the same for you. It just so happened that your first ever marathon in your life was London 2002, and you won it, and you could have beaten the world record had you bothered to look at the, uh, the, uh, the timing board earlier. <laughs> well, it wasn't that I didn't bother. I just didn't actually think because the, first, the aim had obviously been to, to go in and to win the race. And I'd kind of got away and got a gap around Cutty Sark uh, without really meaning to. Just the, the support of the crowd was so amazing uh, that when I came out the other side, I had a gap. Uh, and one thing my dad had always advised me and drummed into me from a, a small kid was if you ever have a gap, you don't look over your shoulder and you don't give that up. So I just thought, oh, well, I'm away now. I may as well keep going. Um, I think I went through halfway in 72 something which in my mind was not possible that I could get close to a world record of 218.47, I think it was at the time, um, of that slow a first half. So I really was just enjoying myself over the second half and just um, enjoying the crowd, enjoying the atmosphere uh, and kind of playing mind games, I guess, in my own head and thinking about everything that Stephen Brendan might be saying in the, in the commentary box about how stupidly I was running. Um, and it was only when I started to look at clocks with the last 800 metres to go yeah. that I realised, hold on a minute, this is actually, this is going to be 218 something. Um, and obviously then I was running as fast as I could. So mm. it's one thing knowing five miles out and then you can maybe pick up the pace, but I, I couldn't pick up any more and gain that time. I suppose it could have gone the other way. Had you known five miles out that you'd be finishing within nine seconds of the of the current world record in your first ever marathon, you might have tried too hard, you might have lost your flow, you might have ended up going slower, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. I mean, to be honest, I don't think I could have run that. I ran such huge negative splits that day. I don't think I could have run much faster for the second half anyway. So I think any chance of actually getting that record had probably gone in the first 10 miles of the race anyway. Um, uh, and to be honest... It didn't really matter because the minute I crossed the line and I saw the clock, I knew that if I ran it cleverly and smartly, then I could get that world record. Um, so it really was a case of kind of love at first sight taste of the marathon. And I think about 10 strides after crossing the finish line, I already got hold of Gary and I said, I can get that record. I need to be in a marathon in the autumn uh, where I can beat it. And so that's when we planned, we started already planning Chicago. Oh, just over the finish line. And have I got that right? So you ran the first half of your first ever marathon in an hour 12 and your second half in just under an hour seven. Would that be right? I think it's that. I'd have to look exactly. I think I think it was 67-something my wow. split for the second half. 
Um, <laughs> and it, it must maybe be 71 high, but it was it was around 72 minutes oh um, for the first half. Whereas when I ran later, yep. it was um, so when I ran in Chicago, I think I went through in just around about 69 minutes. All right. Well, back the truck up away from Chicago a second or two. So for people who are listening to this, probably on a long run, uh, training for their first ever marathon, you know, what we all think when we training for our first marathon is will we finish all we want to do is finish you know and we don't know that's going to happen until the day because as you just said you know the most we run is 20 22 miles it's what you're advised to do when you're training you, you never run a full marathon in training you hadn't done that either but i'm presuming you it never crossed your mind that you might not make it obviously you thought i've got 26.2 miles in my legs yeah, I mean, I think the the reason, and I understood the reason that you don't run it in training is just because it takes that bit more out of yourself. You've kind of only got the, the glycogen reserves to get you through to um, around about 22, 23 miles before you start kind of actually having to break stuff down. And that's what causes the sore legs and takes the time to recover from. Um, so I, I knew that I was capable of doing it. And to be honest, you don't really care because you're going to take a break after the marathon anyway. So um, I think knowing that I would get through that, I definitely had in my mind when I came through Tower Bridge um, and um, where the hotel is on the way back. So I knew then, OK, this is what, 25 minutes of running max left now. And I can do that on the tiredest training day when I really feel like I haven't got any motivation to get out of the door and go running. I can always get through that. So I knew that I could finish that that marathon. Um, and then you aren't fully rested up and with all of the support of the crowds behind you. So I think it, you will always get through that extra distance on the day. Uh, and if anything, the training is, is probably harder, even though it's a slightly shorter distance. It's funny because you're talking about becoming hypoglycemic there because it's uh, 20, 22 miles. See, I heard, and you would know this better than me, and I'm not at all taking issue with you over this, I'm just saying that I was always taught, I continue to be taught, that the reason we go hypoglycemic is because of time. But because you finish a marathon in two hours, and we're told it's about two hours when we go hypoglycemic, regardless of how far we, we, we run. And Mo Farah says the same thing as you. Um, because you run a marathon in two hours, <laughs> we feel like, our legs feel like yours do, and about between 8 and 14 miles for the same reasons I think biologically oh I don't know no I, I was told 20 miles but maybe I've been told that wrong I don't know that's just what I'd, I'd always understood was that you store that in your um in your muscles obviously that's why you need to build up the muscles and marathon runners need to have strength because that is where you're going to store the glycogen to use during the race but you absolutely need to be topping that up yeah um and if you're if you're running slower mm -hmm. you're actually able to access fat as a fuel as well um and you can do that in the early stages of a marathon um but then you're going to switch over at some point to glycogen and everybody has to um, so there may be something in the time as well. I guess we'd have to ask a physiologist on that. I always have a joke with Mo about the fact that we're better than him because we can run for five hours and he can only run for two hours, ten minutes. It's, it's true, though. It is true. <laughs> it, is, it is very hard to run for a longer time. OK, what's the longest you've ever run for? Um, I don't think it's very long. It probably is my slowest marathon. 
which was your last marathon. I haven't, I haven't done more than that. Yeah, um, which would be about two hours forty. Two hours forty. That's the slowest marathon, everyone. Just two hours forty. What a loser. What <laughs> well, a complete loser. I'm rounding up. All right. Um, <laughs> so I was going to talk about your first, your last, and your everything, which I presume would be two thousand three. Of course, it has to be two thousand three, London. But of course, um, let's talk about Chicago quickly without getting too nerdy and statty about it. Just, just take us through what happened to in Chicago. Um, your second ever marathon. Um, so Chicago was in October the 13th of 2002. And so we, we came away from the London Marathon, had a break, got into to training, actually got bronchitis. So I had a little bit of time out and ended up um, able to do, had, or forced really to do my first track race at 3,000 metres in Monaco, um, which normally you'd ease in with a, a bit of a, a lower key, easier one beforehand. Um, but no, I went straight into that and actually ran a huge personal best of 8.22, um, which is still one of the personal bests that I'm most proud of over 3,000 metres. Um, and so then from there, I went into the Commonwealth Games in Manchester and won my first title on the track at 5,000 metres and just missed the world record at the time there. And then to the European Championships 10K and... Um, I managed to get Ingrid Christensen's European record, uh, which for me was more within my sights than the world record uh, of Yunxia Wang at the time. So I ran 30.01 there. I was a bit gutted not to break through, a lot, very gutted not to break through the 30-minute barrier. Um, but already made the decision then not to race the 5,000 metres because I was focused on getting ready for that world record attempt in Chicago. And it was very much that in my head. Uh, and I knew from the training going into it that I was in better shape than I had been for the London Marathon. So I knew I was very capable of doing it. Um, and then we get to Chicago and I'm racing the current world record holder at the time as well, Catherine Doreba. So it was also about winning the race as well as trying to, to get the record. And a huge cold front came in that day and it was very, very cold wind chill in the morning. Um, and I, I managed to get my period the day of the race as well, which didn't really help me. So a couple of a lot of things didn't come together that day, but I still was able to to run well. Um, so I think it was very special and important to me because it was, of course, my first world record. Um, when I talk about my grandma as well, I share a lucky number from my grandma of seventeen, and when I crossed the finish line in Chicago, the clock said two seventeen seventeen. Later on, they rounded it up to to two seventeen eighteen. Um, but that was very special to me. So my grandma, just to fill you in there, she was born on the 17th of December, 1917, and she only weighed three and a half pounds. Oh. And they said she wouldn't survive at the time, and she used to live till 95. And she was a very, very tough lady. Um, but she also got married on the 17th. My dad was born on the 17th of February. My aunt was born on the 17th of June. And then I was her first grandchild, and I was born on her birthday on the 17th of December. So when I was pregnant with Isla... Um, I was convinced she was going to come on our birthday as well early because she was due on the 5th of January. But no, she came late. So she came on the 17th of January. <laughs> so it kept coming up all the way through. Um, so when I crossed that finish line, I rang her up and I said, Grandma, guess what time I ran? And she said, 17 minutes. I said, no, it's a marathon. It has to start with two hours. <laughs> she was sort of right. Yeah, she was right. She knew what I was phoning, <laughs> but she just missed the two hours bit. I love it. But yeah, I knew that I could improve on it then and I wanted to bring it back to, to London. Um, mm. So I think from then we started talking with Dave Bedford um, about how I could how I could get set that world record in London. 
See, so first, it gets better the story, doesn't it? First ever marathon, you win the London Marathon. Your first ever marathon, you win the London Marathon and you miss out on the world record by nine seconds because you weren't focused. <laughs> you weren't concentrated around Parliament Square. Um, second marathon, Chicago, you win it. Um, you beat the current world record holder and you beat the world record. You set a new world record. Third marathon back in London. I mean, I can't I can't think of anybody doing anything in sport or life in general where the first three outings have been so successful. I know, and it, it was... I mean, probably that's why it was so hard and it hit me so hard in Athens. I think it would have hit me hard anyway, but it was really a case of kind of landing on your feet. And I think for me, it was just things clicked. I just really found the event that suited me and I felt that in the marathon all of the components were everything that I loved having to to think things out having to plan ahead having to stick to the plan having to gauge your effort having to know your body really well just that challenge that it's not just you against the other people in the race it's you against the distance um, and it's you against your own mind and your own body Uh, and I loved all of that and I think that's why I just felt like I had many more options about how I could win a race and how I could run a race in the marathon than I'd ever had on the track or even the cross country. I think there, I was always kind of, oh, the one who was going to make the pace early on and usually get out sprinted in the closing stages. But even with the marathon, I could win a race in the final closing stages because it's not a sprint in the marathon. At the end of the marathon, it's it's pulling your strength together and being able to to muster that. So that's why I think the marathon was kind of my perfect distance and, and the perfect fit for me physically and psychologically. Yeah. I don't know when to dip into training um, for, for our listeners. Probably now, I'd imagine, because I want to draw parallels with, with, with you know, your experiences in your world-famous marathons and um, people's experiences that will have already begun in training for their first. Because the great thing about marathon runners is it's not so much about making it to the finish line. It's about having the bottle, the balls, the kahunas, the focus and the commitment to make it to the start line. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it is that, that camaraderie and that big family uh, of runners when you're, you're running a marathon. Um, and there's a unique spirit to it that I don't think you'll find in any other mass event. And I think you're absolutely right. It is that respect. We're, we're kind of kindred spirits as well. We're all trying to achieve the same thing. And you're largely going through the same journey on the day. And the journey to the day as well is very, very similar. And there's ups and downs in that. Everybody has their own struggles with different types of injuries, with motivation and different things. So I think when you come to that race day, there's a huge amount of excitement, but also anticipation and support for other people going through the same thing that you're going through. So let's compare, let's use a parallel of your most famous marathon, the London Marathon, when you set the world record, which stood till just last year, uh, for people training for their first ever London Marathon. So let's dip in and out of different super hacks and things that will be helpful generally. First of all, sleeping the night before the marathon. Let's fast forward. They've done all their training. They've done their 17 weeks. They've done their 119 days to go. And they're trying to get to sleep the night before their first ever London marathon. How did you sleep before your third marathon, your second London, the eve of this amazing world record that stood for, what was it, 16, 17 years? Um, I think I actually slept fairly well. I mean, everybody's up early day of the the race anyway um and my dad and my coach had always kind of impressed on me it's it's more important and I try to say to everybody else 
getting ready for their first marathon. It's more important to kind of stockpile that sleep in the final week of the race than it is to worry about the night before. Um, because sometimes you sleep well, sometimes you don't. It's really actually going to impact on your performance the next day. Uh, but laying awake worrying about it, the worrying will drain you. So my dad always used to say, if you're laying on your bed and your legs are resting, what are you worried about? And you've re um, slept enough leading up to that. Um, but I think I actually, I actually did sleep well. Uh, Gary was sick that year. Um, we'd come down to do a press conference on the Monday before the race. And then the guy driving us home had some kind of gastro and Gary actually was sick from the minute we arrived in London on the Thursday. So he was staying in a separate room. Um, so I kind of just got myself um, ready for the race. And I think I slept very well. And then I woke in the morning um, and it was just that immediate open the curtains, look outside and see what the weather's like because anybody knows running their first marathon, running any marathon, it's really important that you look open those curtains and it's a nice day outside, it's not blowing a gale. Um, so I, I did that and, and the weather was, was decent. Um, and then, of course, the nerves start to set in, uh, but you've got things to do. And that's why I always try to plan out before I go to sleep the night before, mm. kind of my kit for race day, everything's packed in my race bag. And so I only need to just get up get dressed, get ready, have some breakfast and and get on the bus to the start. Yeah, you become your own race day manager the day before. That's the best way to go about it, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and check everything. Never wear any new shoes, oh. new kits. Make sure that you've, you've run a little <laughs> bit in all of it. Yeah, well, a little bit in all of it. I like that. Okay, <laughs> we'll get on to shoes in a bit. So sleeping generally. Now, you are renowned, as are many elite athletes, as a super sleeper. Has that always come naturally because you're at peace because of your running, because you're tired, you know, your body uh, wants the rest, it needs the rest, so it gets the rest? Because people do need to sleep for these 17 weeks beforehand as much as they can, better than they ever have in their lives if possible, because being fresh at the start is more important, as important definitely, probably more important than being physically up to speed as far as your schedule is concerned. Yes, um, I think so, because when, you, when you're sleeping, that's when your body is recovering and, and rebuilding and capitalising on all of the training. So when you're training, you're stressing your muscles, breaking them down a little bit. And when you're sleeping, that's when your, your body's recovering and consolidating on all of that training. So if you're not sleeping, you can't support the training. You're far more likely to get injured. You're far more likely to get sick. So it's really important that you give your body enough sleep. Um, it's hard to know, though, because, I mean, I always love my sleep. Um, and my kids love their sleep now, uh, particularly my daughter. Is, you need a bomb to get her out of bed in the morning. So I think some of that is maybe genetics. Maybe I just needed a lot of sleep, but some of it is what my body adapted to. Um, and I do remember probably being quite quite anal and quite boring as a kid, and that if I had a big race at the weekend, I would be banging on the floor to tell my brother to turn the TV down so I could get to sleep at night um, so that I could get enough rest that week. Uh, and then when I was training really hard um, for the marathons, I probably slept 10, 11 hours a day because I would sleep easily nine hours at night and then another two in the afternoon. It's, it's funny because you've told me that before and I talked to Mo about it. You know, Mo's 10 hours a night man still. I think you saying about it's 12 hours a night, you know, and famously it's eat, sleep, run, and it's not dissimilar for you. And, you know, if you are sleeping for that long, and this is a sleep, this is not just in bed, but a sleep for nine or 10 or 11 hours, and then you're training and you're looking after yourself, there's not really much of the rest of life to deal with. Um, I suppose then you've, therefore you get less stressed and you can sleep easier. It's an upward spiral as opposed to a downward insomniac spiral. Yeah, and I think it also, there's kind of that good fatigue. I mean, everybody struggles to, to sleep after mm. a hard race. 
But after a hard training session, it's very easy to fall asleep. And it's the hardest thing is probably waking yourself up again from that nap. So you do get used to, I guess, it using it as a coping uh, technique for, for managing the fatigue through the training. Um, and it was another thing that my coach used to be very strict on was taking your, your morning pulse. I mean, now people have devices that do that for them. But I just used to count my pulse every morning before I stood up out of bed. And that's a really good indicator of how well you've recovered from the previous day or the previous week's training. Uh, and if that was up too much, if it was up just a little bit, I would have a very easy day. But if it was up too much, I would have a complete rest day um, just to make sure that I wasn't digging myself in, into a hole that is hard to recover from. That's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes you can wake up feeling great with devices such as Whoop is one of the ones you're referring to, uh, but you shouldn't train. And if you get the right advice, that can be really useful. Yes, yeah. And it, again, it's just learning to to listen to your body. Um, and if your, your morning pulse is up slightly, if your morning temperature is up slightly, it is a indication of something that your body's fighting against. So if you just give it a little bit more rest, chances are that you'll be able to, to fight it off before it becomes anything serious that's actually going to mess up your routine um, and necessitate more time off. What about breathing then in your pulse? Did you ever do? Did you ever focus on breathing? Did you ever have any breathing regimes? Um, I remember once on a, it was an East of England squad training when I would have been about fourteen, fifteen, um, and one of the national coaches at the time teaching us a breathing centralisation technique um, for relaxation, and I would then use that when nerves got the better of me um, in the build up to races and. For me, it tended to be predominantly the night before or the day waiting for a race in the evening rather than when you're actually going through the motions of getting ready for the race. So when you're packing your bag and you're warming up, you're using that nervous energy. But when I was sitting around and all of the training's done, all of the bags are packed and ready, that was the time when the nerves would sometimes get the better of me. So that was the time when I would kind of use the, the breathing techniques just to just to calm myself down and just to uh, ensure or remind myself to fully use all of your lungs. I guess that's what the breathing techniques are doing when we're nervous and we're stressed. You tend to only use the top section of your lungs um, and then without really realising it, you're hyperventilating and you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain and to your muscles and you start to feel dizzy and you start to feel the signs of stress. So just reminding yourself and thinking and concentrating about those deep breaths can just work against that um, and get you using, getting that oxygen to all of the areas that need it. Yeah, and get rid of that carbon dioxide as well and slowing that heart rate down. So mm -hmm. so we encourage people to get onto YouTube and check out some breathing. That is a really important and useful thing for amateur runners to do for the first marathon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't even... It's just basically laying down, put your hand on your tummy and just breathe in deeply so that you can you can feel your, your tummy rising and then fully empty your lungs and breathe in. So it's yeah. just slowing that rhythm down and really thinking and visualising the air going into your lungs, fully inflating everything and then fully emptying again and taking all of that stress out with it while it's taking the carbon dioxide out. Now, people are so excited when they do manage to get to the start line and good for them uh, for the first marathon, wherever it may be. Once again, we're talking about London 2020 in October for most people and the virtual London and other people running just around the virtual London because they couldn't get in the virtual London. I think there'll be more people running a marathon um, in the first weekend of October in the UK this year than there's ever been and maybe ever will be. Um, and so they've done the training. They deserve to be on the start line. The mutual respect is palpable, but 
and you, you can absolutely get as excited as you like, but you, if you can try and hold onto that excitement till 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 the gun goes off, um, till the green light you know is illuminated, mm-hmm. it's best, isn't it? Because you can exhaust yourself just by the the noise on the start line of people, the the you know the 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 animation, the 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 level of of chatter. I mean, it's almost like the, the race is over, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. like, hang on, guys, you've got 26 miles to go here. Try and keep a lid on it. Yeah, no, exactly. I, mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you can, keep the lid on it till halfway. Um, yep. But certainly try not to, to get caught up too much. And it's hard, particularly, I think, when things open up again and people get the chance to go to the expo and you feel the excitement already building there. Um, but what you don't want to do is spend hours walking around around there um, or try mm. out new things that you see at the expo for race day. So, yeah, try and keep a lid on it. Try and keep it controlled. Try and channel that energy into some kind of reserve box that you're going to draw on in the second half of the race um, because yeah. that energy from the other runners will still be there, but they're also going to be runners around you that are going to need some back from you uh, and need some support in that second half probably because they have burnt through that nervous energy too early on in the race. So it is trying to to gauge it, to, to spread it out uh, and to keep something in reserve to keep you going when it really does get tough in, in, that, in that, that final third, really, of the marathon. Brilliant advice uh, from the best in the world. Uh, so please pay attention, everybody. Heed this uh, or, or don't heed this at your peril. Right, so apart from the training schedule, apart from staying cool um, on race day, apart from getting as much sleep, more sleep than you've ever had since you were a kid over the next 17 weeks or depending on where you are now in your <laughs> training schedule, the next thing is apart from the plan itself, which is Dr. Martin Yelling's amazing 17-week plan, shoes, shoes, shoes. Let's talk about running shoes. Let's talk about <laughs> your your first ever running shoes, your favourite running shoes. Uh, what drew you to Nike? Have you vapor-flied yet? Um, yep. Let's just talk about shoes in general. How do people, how did you pick your first shoes? How should people pick their first shoes? Um, well, my first pair of shoes, obviously I didn't pick, my parents um, picked for me and my dad got me a pair of, of they were Nike Wally Waffles. Uh, red Wally Waffles, and Wally Waffles was actually what they called the kids' waffle trainer at the time. But I didn't realise that. I thought my dad had just made up this name, and they were just Wally Waffles, and it just seemed such a stupid name that he'd made it up. Um, So I remember years, years later when I was sponsored by Nike and I met Phil Knight at Beaverton, I actually said to him, you know, my dad used to call my first trainers Wally Waffles, and he looked at me and he went... Yeah, that's because that's the name. I was like, oh, I thought it was so stupid. My dad made it up. Why would you call it a Wally Waffle? But obviously in America, a Wally's not a Wally. No, I wonder what a Wally is in America. We know what a waffle is. And and that's how, <laughs> for people who don't know, that's how the waffle sole came about. That's Because it, it was actually moulded from a waffle maker. Yeah, it was um, Bill Bowerman, one of the original shoe designers at Nike. Um, the, the legend is that he made it in his his wife's waffle line. I think he did actually have an old one in his cupboard that was specifically for developing the shoe. But it was that grip then was at the time probably something similar to to the vapor flyers are now in terms of it. It was a big step up for runners and runners' performance in training shoes and helped um, runners to to run better. Uh, And it obviously built Nike's base and they went on from there. Um, But yeah, at that time, that was my basically... My pair of trainers, my school shoes, my pretty much everything. So photos that I have of those couple of years, I'm wearing those shoes everywhere. Um, and then it was only later on when I kind of developed into actually having shoes to race in, shoes to to train in, and then different shoes outside of running. 
So, and what was the biggest, biggest technological advance in your time in running when, when it came to shoes? Because we know that the Vaporfly soles has revolutionized running they there's that lovely phrase isn't there you know running for a while uh, what wasn't a, a legs arms hips and ankles race it became an arms race you know and and the souls were weaponized what was it was there a moment like that in your running career with technology um i'm not sure there was i mean i think there were gradual improvements all the time and that's why I don't really have a huge problem with the development in shoe technology because the shoes that I ran in were far, far better than the shoes that Ingrid Christensen ran in in 1985. And I think for the time that I was competing at the top, the technological improvements that we were seeing weren't necessarily on, on the shoe front. It was things like, I mean, the difference between a Cinder track and a, a Tartan track and then later a Mondo track were huge in terms of, of how fast runners could run. The understanding of proper fueling within a marathon was a big thing. And I think if you think back to, to runners in the 60s, maybe even in the 80s, essentially just drinking water through the race um, then there was a lot more thought and development went into to being able to fuel your body very well during the race to be able to, to finish strongly. So I would say probably that, maybe things like heart rate monitors as well and just being able to access a little bit more understanding, physiological understanding of the training and what worked for you individually were the big impacts during my career. And then I think that big jump in, in shoes probably came later, certainly for road racing shoes. I mean, I think the spikes really are just still a gradual evolution. So I started off in Nikes because of you. And I've said this in the book, you know, I, I wore Nikes, A, because they, they look cool, B, because they felt good in the hand bizarre. It's like when you go to buy a house, you buy a whole house based on the kitchen and the bathrooms, not the living room and your bedroom, which is where you spend most of the time. Yeah. And so you pick a pair of trainers up, you know, in the shop, and you go, oh, these feel nice in my hand. I know, I'll wear them on my feet for 26 <laughs> miles, you know. Um, and then I now I'm on New Balance. I've tried Vibram um five fingers and the vivos and all that kind of stuff uh i tried asics they just felt a bit too heavy on my foot or i imagined it and i just want to get to get back to nikes on my journey to new balance i mean do you have any like top three tips for people picking their shoes is or is it literally just try some out and what makes every whatever makes you feel comfortable and confident um that is my top tip is just to to try them out the best running stores will be still the ones that will allow you to try them on and just to run up and down um, because you're right, you can't really tell much from how it feels when you just pick it up in your hand. But if you put it on your feet, even if you only run a couple of hundred metres, you get, you're not always right, but you get a fair impression of, of whether they're going to work for you. And the big thing is doing a little bit of research as well or asking the running people in the, in the running shoe shop about their advice for what shoe supports your style of running the best. So try and work out if you're a pronator or a supinator, if you're a heel striker or a midfoot striker, forefoot striker, because different shoes will work better for you depending on which one of those you are. And I think understanding that and just, it's also just having that confidence to, to know what feels good and what works for you and to, to go with that, not go with whatever the magazine says is going to make you run 5% faster than everyone else because that isn't necessarily going to work for everybody. And you need to try them out and see, does it feel right? Do I feel good after I've run in that? Um, because that's the, the most important thing. You have to do something that supports you and your style. Yeah. 
And what about sock technology? Is that even a phrase? Um, it definitely used to be. Uh, I think they're all very good now. So uh, I think it's probably less of an issue. Um, but certainly making sure that you understand that, yeah, the sock and the sock fitting comfortably in your shoe and being able to, to wick the, the sweat away and support and keep your foot comfortable through the marathon distance, that's important. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because the first, you get all kinds of maranoia, you know, when you're training for your first marathon and, and then you run it and it's little things like just making sure five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times that there isn't a little piece of yeah. grit, you know, in your sock or on your foot before you put your sock on or then between the sock and the sole of the shoe, you know, and whether your laces are too tight, too tight, too loose, you know. Do you, do you do the thing with the loops on the top of the laces to stop your foot slipping forward in the shoe? Yeah, yeah. I think again, it's it's com it's what's comfort. But I do that, and then triple knot, and then loop the ends of the loop back through the laces as well, just to make sure that they're going to stay down. Or if you've got a chip, then the chip will hold right. those down uh, as well. The disadvantage being that the other advice is that if you feel like something like a wrinkle in your sock or something in your shoe, it's far better to stop and take it out early rather than try and. Um, gut your way through it and brave your way through it because it's, it's just going to get worse. So that small amount of time to correct it at the beginning is time one later on. Yeah, I mean, I double sock, Paula. What do you think about double socking? A lot of people do that. And I think, again, I think if it's something that you've tried in training uh, and it works, then absolutely do it in racing. I used to Vaseline or anti-friction cream and then sock and then a little bit on the outside of the sock before my shoe as well. I love it because we're getting so nerdy, but this is how nerdy you have to get, whether you're going to walk your first ever six-hour marathon or, or whatever, because this is where we are, isn't it? And this is, what, this, this is the bit I love, Paula. Yeah, exactly. And it's just making sure that all of those little pieces come together because it is a big thing and you spend a lot of time preparing. I mean, we're talking about 17-week training plans, but it's a little bit before that as well that you start planning it. So it's a long journey through. And... What everybody wants is for it to go well on the day. So you want to do everything possible to, to wrap that in cotton wool and to in, ensure that you get the most out of it and you capitalise on all of that hard work. You're listening to How to Wow with running legend Paula Radcliffe and this super special one-off episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife, and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity, and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow okay and now back to my conversation with paula radcliffe 
So the plan is the plan is the plan. That's set in stone. We've talked about sleep, which is mega, mega important. We talked about shoes, which is the most important piece of kit you're going to buy. Um, and do you have a cutoff limit for when you can um, employ a new pair of shoes? I mean, you have a bit of previous with this as well. We have a story this, don't we? <laughs> um, yeah, again, I think they... They have improved so much now, the shoes that you don't need to. When my dad was running those marathons back in 85, he used to talk about the fact that you needed to walk around in them for a couple of weeks first and then do some runs in them, and then they would be okay for race day. Um, by the time I was running marathons, that wasn't the case, but I would always make sure that I'd done at least a couple of 10K training sessions uh, in the shoes um, and not race in absolutely brand-new shoes out of the box. Having said that, I know people that have done that, and I myself did that for that final marathon in 2015, um, where I just I just ran in shoes that I'd probably just jogged 20 minutes in beforehand. Um, but they suit they seemed to suit my foot, and I thought I could get through it then, and it worked out okay. Um, I have done track races where I've literally just taken a pair of spikes from the sports marketing rep, put them on, and raced in them that night, and run a personal best. So that can happen if you pull a Radcliffe, of course. Is that story about you going into the Nike Town store in New York for a pair of socks true? Uh, no, so it wasn't. It was um, in Chicago for the hat because it was so cold. So because we knew it was so cold, and I never ran in hats, and even then the hat didn't stay on my head because I knocked my head so much it came off at 17 miles. Um, but somebody did come and give it back to me afterwards. But we did go in there to to buy arm warmers and, and a hat because it, we had just seen that it was going to be so cold on race day. Okay, and you were Paul Radcliffe of Nike at that point, and there was a 30 foot Paul Radcliffe behind <laughs> you, and the lady behind the counter said, "Hang on a minute." Uh, is that she? You look a bit like her. Yeah, and I was just like, okay, yeah, just give me the um, the hat and the things. I think I was there for a signing as well, and then we kind of just went off afterwards. So I was there for a kind of Q and A in the store, and then afterwards we just went and bought that. All right, so let's talk about nutrition and hydration now. Um, again, you know. I, I try and run under five hours. It's great. It's lovely. It's it's where I'm happy and I don't want to run unhappily. And for that, you know, you do have to hydrate. You do have to take on, well, I do anyway. Mm -hmm. I take on a couple of gels and things like that for the race itself. But I try and keep it all down to a minimum. Don't get over fussy about it. Um, what do you have to say where nutrition and hydration is concerned? Again, I think, yes, you're, you're absolutely right not to get over, over fussy, over dependent on a certain thing because something might happen in the race and you just can't get hold of, of that particular one and you really need to be able to get something in at that point. So having a range of, of things that you can use to fuel yourself that you have tried out in training, I think it's a good idea for the big city marathons to make sure that you know which, which drinks and which gels are being provided along the route and to try those in training beforehand. Yes, you can still carry your own that you prefer, but at least have tried those so that if for some reason you drop yours, you don't have them anymore, you can take one of the ones provided along the course and use that. And I think that there are basic, it's it's moderation and using common sense, I think, through the, through the training. There are basic rules that are really important. Hydrating and refueling within 20 minutes of finishing training, particularly long training runs, is very, very important. So whatever it is, if you can get something like a banana, an energy bar, a gel and a drink into you immediately, and then a meal as quickly as you can afterwards, that's really going to help your recovery for the next day. Um, and that's really key. And then, again, it's just balance as well. Uh, so just making sure that you include all of the key groups. And runners tend to get very obsessed with carbohydrates, but proteins are also important. Essential fats are very important as well. 
people get um, hung up on the last 36 hours food-wise before their marathon. You keep it lighter than you imagine, don't you? Yeah, just keep it simple. Keep it at what you're used to having. So what you've done in long runs, um, building up through your training, things that you know work for you uh, and have you feeling strong the next day and also gradually build it up over the weeks. So yes, eating a little bit more carbohydrate, but also you're training less. So you don't need to worry about huge, huge portions uh, and just increase those portions, maybe slightly less protein, a little bit more carbohydrate from the Thursday evening for a Sunday race. And you don't need to worry about really stuffing your face on on Saturday night. It is important if you can to get something down your Sunday morning. And I think that's the more important thing. Just train your body beforehand because it's a little bit unnatural at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to be trying to force your body to, to eat some food. Um, so I think being able to, to have something that you can stomach and you can digest at that time in the morning is more what you need to be focused on. So what kind of thing, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think... When you're staying in hotels as well, it's, you need to think ahead a little bit. I used to um, make my own porridge um, just with, with water and porridge oats, honey, uh, banana, um, things that I'd used in training all the time. Some people prefer to, to carry bagels with them or energy bars that they've used before. I think a banana is not is never really a bad thing. Uh, making sure that you drink enough as well. Sometimes people with nerves struggle to, to drink enough water early on in the mm. morning. Um, and if you can drink an energy drink as well. Some people swear by coffee. Some people prefer green tea or, or regular tea. Again, I think it, it's what you're used to doing and what you have done in the long runs building up because you need to remember it's essentially just another long run. But again, you know, if we're going for four to five hours or four to six hours, something like that, you know, it is important. It's really, really important, you know, and you don't want to, anything terrible to happen to you because you, you're dehydrated or underhydrated or you haven't eaten the right things. But when you're training, first of all, on your first long run, you know, in the first couple of weeks, it'll be an hour, it'll be a couple of hours. You don't really need to take anything on board there, do you? Uh, yeah, I would say in your first long run, I would think still start practising because it's difficult to drink as well while you're running and on the run. Um, and still a lot of people find it easier to almost stop and walk through the stations and make sure that they can get enough down them but it is a technique and the longer you can give yourself to to learn that the better um so even if you're if you're running with a small drink or if you've got somebody that's great if you've got somebody to support you with a bike or can just come out of the house every lap and hand you a drink um then that's already helping to to practice doing that and again it, it's it's training your body in the same way as you're training your body to run the marathon training your body to to drink and to take the fluids on and the fuel on during the race is something that's important all the way through Okay. All right. That's good advice. Okay. So, so sooner, because I've always, I, I let that creep in like, you know, week 10 or 11, but you say straight from the off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to, but I think it just gives you more time to get used to it and to adapt to it and to try out different things as well. Um, I think the other thing is, but a lot of the big city marathons now tend to have the drink stations on both sides of the road, but that in itself can sometimes be a bit of a minefield negotiating, getting through, getting a drink and getting out of it safely. Um, so that kind of thing, sometimes it's good to just practice that with a bunch of friends, just pushing each other out of the way to try and get to the drinks table, uh, <laughs> grabbing that and then drinking it as well. Let's touch on a couple of those because um, we mentioned those in the book and that's one of them. And we list them under things nobody tells you. Or I actually said things nobody told me that I had to find out 
whilst I was actually running the London Marathon yeah. for the first time. Which And one of them was, you know, if you fancy a drink and there's a drink station coming up and they let you know well beforehand, position yourself a good 500 yards or begin to position yourself a good 500 yards before the drink station. Because yeah. if you know, if you're nowhere near it, you will just, you will, you, you can't stop no. because you just get carried along with, with the throng. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a reason that they start signposting it so far out. Yeah. Um, and even elites still get it wrong and you can be in your own little world, but it's really important that you train your mind to, to pick up those signs early on and to start moving yourself over to be in position to get that. Because people will help you out. And if you shout it, some people will, they will pass drinks out to you, but it's much less stressful and much easier if you can already start to have yourself in position to be able to get hold of those drinks and then to keep moving out and to be aware of the fact that there's always going to be that person who realises too late as well and cuts in at the last minute and kind of causes carnage as they try and get through everybody to, to get to the table. Yeah, and avoid um, the bottles, the discarded bottles, because it's like literally running yes. on marbles. It can be. It is. And that's one of the things, I mean, they do put bins there and they do put people there to, to pull them across the side of the road. And a lot of runners will try and throw them to the side or kick them to the side. But you really have to watch the probably the greatest risk of twisted ankles and turned ankles is coming out of drink stations. Yeah, another thing nobody tells you, and you would have found this out in 2015 when you were on the Mass Start, is that you've never run with 47,000 people before in your training runs unless you have an inordinate amount of friends. Um, and uh, you can't really see, you can't see in front of you and you can't see the road beneath you and therefore you can't see street furniture, the bollards, the speed bumps, you can't see any of that and you don't realise that until Sunday morning, Greenwich Common, off you go. You're like, hang on a minute, <laughs> what's going on here? I know it is. I mean, it is a whole new experience, isn't it? And a whole new stress and a whole new thing to, to get your mind around. I think it is something that you kind of have to experience for the first time and, and go with it and, and just just be prepared for what it's like. And once you know, then I think for your second one, it either already scares you in advance or at least you know what to expect. Yeah. Um, a great thing about the London Marathon, which you may not find out, well, you will if you listen to this, thank God, uh, but you wouldn't have otherwise until you were running it, is that the first six miles are basically downhill and it's gorgeous, isn't it, Paula? It is, and it's also a little bit of a trap if you if you go too fast there. So I think kind of thinking of it there as a little, it's a little bit of a gift if you use it correctly because you can run a little bit quicker and ahead of your splits um, because it's slightly downhill, but you don't want to go too much quicker because then you'll pay for that in the closing stages. So I think it, it's very much, again, about looking at the course in advance and knowing what you're going to be racing over and expecting it. So if you know that you're going to be running a little bit ahead of your projected pace for that first six miles and just to relax and enjoy it and get ready for what's coming afterwards. I mean, it, it's balanced out by the fact that you then hit Cutty Sark and that's a great atmosphere uh, and a great area. So there's an easy transition into no more downhill. Yeah, no, it is absolutely gorgeous. And then there are two main starts. They sort of kettle together just on the south bank of the River Thames. Um, uh, and that's a fantastic moment as well. Something nobody told me before I ran my first one whilst I was running it was that your watch goes off before all the mile markers because you're not running <laughs> the exact course. And you're like, hang on a minute, what's, you know, another one, what's going on here? Two. Yeah, I think that depends again which which start line you're on. Um, and also the fact that there are, there is a certain margin for error um, and your watch isn't always going to be 100% correct but you can pretty much trust that by the time you get to the finish line of the marathon they will have got it right they've been doing it for a long time it might be slightly over in compliance with the with the rules for the marathon but it's the same distance everyone else is running 
Um, one of the first tips you ever gave me, which was which was a killer tip, and you've already alluded to it, was you know start slow and run a bit slower. And you said to me on the Friday before your last and mine first in 2015, as we had that little light lunch outside the Tower Hotel in the gorgeous sunshine, you said, always think, can I run faster? And if you can't, not that you should, but if you don't have the option, you are already running too fast. Yes, yeah. It's a little bit like the minute you're thirsty, it's too late. Uh, you should have drunk before you were thirsty. Um, and it, it's the same Definitely, I would say up to, even up to 20 miles in the marathon. You have to know that you are capable of running faster at that point and you could raise it if you were actually forced to because you need that bit in reserve for later on. And then in, in the final five, six miles, absolutely, they can pour it all out. Um, but up until then, make sure that you know that you're kind of running a little bit within yourself. And if you don't think that you could run quicker, you're running too quick. Yeah, it's not going to end well, not at all. You talked to me about on that Friday again in the sunshine, which I, I, I can't ever th- I can't ever repay you for that conversation we had because oh, no. it was it was such an honour, it was such a delight, and also so bloody useful. Let me tell you, and I I took on board everything you said, and it helped me. And my first marathon remains to this day my most enjoyable, actually my e- the easiest one as well. Um, you said, Chris, expect three dips in your race. Yeah. Um, just expect them, so you don't expend any energy by being surprised by them happening. Yeah, and by worrying about them because that is, uh, I mean, that's what I always say, the marathon's like life. There's going to be ups and downs uh, along the way and you need to expect those and you need to just be able to have the techniques in place to to knuckle down, to go back and look at, think about the training that you've done, the preparation that you've done and to have that trust that you're going to come through it. Um, and you will. Everybody does come through it and you look around you, there'll be people going through those dips at all different stages in the race uh, and nine times out of ten if you kind of look alongside you in distress the person beside you will say it's all right you'll get through it just hang in just don't talk for a little bit just focus on one foot in front of the other just just think about whatever technique you use I just used to count I just used to count up to 100 uh, and then start again when I got to 100 so literally all I was thinking about was what number came next and one foot in front of the other but what it was also doing was breaking down each mile into smaller manageable sec- uh, sections for me so three times 100 then was roughly a mile so it broke it down so I was only there in the moment in the there and now thinking about one foot in front of the other and not thinking about anything else not thinking about that bad patch and I think if you are expecting that then you you can just kind of con- go back into yourself and just keep focused and concentrating through that and come through it. Uh, and then also be aware that there might be another one. It might not be three, but if you're prepared for three, yeah. then it's it's a good thing if you don't have three. You know, because that's what happened with me. So you, you said be, be prepared for three. That's a wise move. And then because I, I, I trained harder and more diligently for my first one than any since, I have to say, I'm going to try and repeat that this time just because it was so much more enjoyable. But the first six to nine miles literally didn't exist. I, honestly, I wouldn't say I was flying because I'm so slow but you know it was completely painless and then mm-hmm. I got I got to Tower Bridge and I was thinking I'm waiting for one of Paula's three and of course you know if you expect three and you get halfway and one hasn't happened you can almost start ticking the first one off and that's just such a positive state of mind to be in yeah yeah definitely and the same way when, when you come through so when you do hit that bad patch and you come through and you start to feel better that is a huge psychological boost as well because you're like okay that's that's one and I've beaten that and I've come through it so now when the next one comes I know I'm going to come through it because I just got through that one. Um, so that just does keep spurring your at the same time as you're seeing that miles to go decreasing all the time as well. 
you know, and everything's comparative. You were talking about during the 2003 world record London race, um, your most famous race, 2.15.25, um, you, you did hit some bad patches. What were those bad patches like for you on April the 13th, 2003? Um, they were, I'm trying to think, actually the first first mile or so I didn't I didn't feel great um but I think that is is fairly standard sometimes in nerves and you want things to feel amazing especially when you're working for something like I was then and it just didn't feel completely flowing I think it probably was just maybe my mind and body in its own way trying to hold me back a bit in those early stages and then I started to to feel much much better and my third mile was um, very quick. Uh, I think they actually had the mile markers in the wrong place that day as well. So I think it came up at 4.50. Uh, and I had a little bit of a, a mental, um, psychological freak-out panic that I, I just screwed it all up by going too quick. Um, and then I got back on, on top of things and felt good, I think, until about... I think I had one about 16 miles um, and one about 18 miles. And then along the embankment um, was was a tough time. And that's, of course, the... The point where I always talked about where Peter Elliott, who was on the BBC camera bike at the time, dropped back from the lead vehicle where Gary was to alongside me and just shouted across to me, Gary says, if you pick it up, you can run 216. Well, anybody who's like two miles to go in a marathon knows that you can't really pick it up. You're going as hard as you can at that point, And it's just everything that you've got left is being poured into it. So I replayed in my mind, I think, a fair bit of um, retorts back to Gary at that point. But it did also give me a, a psychological boost because I knew or I thought I'd worked out in my head, but you never know if your brain's functioning properly at that stage in the marathon either. Uh, and I was fairly confident I was somewhere around 216. But to hear that and to know that I was going to comfortably be inside the world record, that helped me get through that last mile. And see my telephone box as well. <laughs> Tell us about the telephone box. So there's a um, telephone box at a mile to go on the embankment. Big Ben <laughs> is, is 1,200 metres. So that's already a huge psychological thing when you see Big Ben and you know that there's only 1,200 metres to go and you make that turn. Um, but before that, there is a red telephone box on the left-hand side as you run up the embankment. Um, and that is a mile to go. And we measured that out and Gary had picked it out for me um, the first marathon in 2002. And I think I'd said about it somewhere. So in 2003, when I came along, there was actually someone sitting cross-legged on top of the box shouting, this is it. So I think, yeah, that gives... Because everyone can run the last mile. Once you see that, you know you're on the home straight. The last mile is kind of the home straight of the marathon, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Because for people who are running for the first time, you know, they may have started off with a mile and then you're looking forward to the last five or six miles. Um, and, you know, you hopefully you won't hit the wall. Hopefully you get over that. The crowds will take you back from um, around uh, the Tower of London. Um, and it's all it's all completely gorgeous. Um, mentally, when you ran 2015 and you you kicked off from the mass start and you'd, you'd made the decision because of uh, your foot injury um, that almost prevented you from running at all to, to not go to the elite start, which is the only place you'd really known before, and have a different experience. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you, Paula Radcliffe, on that mass start? Did, 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 have you talked to anybody else, you know, an amateur runner or amateur runners, um, to, 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 to see if they felt like you did? did you, do you think you had the same butterflies that we have? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think I'm so I'm so so grateful for that experience because 
that is the true magic and the true um, atmosphere and, and spirit of the London Marathon on that start because you have to think the elite women as well go 45 minutes before the, the mass race. So not only are you in your own little kind of protected bubble at the start um, where you're obviously psyched up for the race and thinking about the race, so all of those nerves and all of that anticipation is still good, but it's nothing like the palpable energy that you can feel on, on the mass start. And I think, yeah, there's certain things like you don't have your own little space on the start line. You've kind of got to elbow your way to that and, and find that. Um, you have to queue up longer for the toilets. There, there's things that aren't <laughs> the advantages that you get in the elite race. Um, but you don't really experience that true camaraderie no. um, in the elite race because it is an elite race. Whereas in the mass race, there really are those walls of people around you um, kind of all going through the same thing. And also the, the, the spectrum of, of, I mean, there were people around me that spectacularly got it wrong in terms of pacing. Um, and so that's, you, you don't see that on the, on the elite race. People tend to really pace their race as well. But here there were people going off way too fast and then coming back um, and other people flying through later on that had obviously started too far back. Um, and, and so I think seeing all of that change as well and the crowds are just thicker as well. And there's a little bit more, not desperation, but excitement from the crowd trying to pick out their loved ones in the race because the race is really close, whereas the elite race, it's spread out. It's easy to pick people out and cheer them on. But when you hear little kids like desperately trying to find dad or mom in the race, um, that's really cool and really special too. So it was nice to kind of... you. You run with different pockets of people, don't you? So you almost make friends along the way. Yeah, you do. You do. Um, and that's what I think is special. You get to the finish line, a slightly different person to the one that started the race. Um, and that is true on the elite side, but not in the same way. I think you you go through that gamut of emotions and you meet more people, you come together and you're there for other people more in, in the mass race. I think another race day super hack, um, and I can't remember who gifted me this one. It wasn't you because you wouldn't have experienced it because you just alluded to it there is that it's much easier, everyone, for the runners to see people in the crowd than for the crowd to see the runners that they want to support. So what we've always done is whoever's come to support us, they always buy a big inflatable and they know they tell us which mile they're going to be and always the runners can see the supporters easier than the supporters can see the runners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's definitely true, but it's also really difficult to pick out people in the crowd unless they're doing something very big so I think knowing doing something like that but also knowing exactly if you can roughly where, where you're going to be and said that I had friends came over from Monaco um uh, so they came over from Monaco and they called me or called Gary on the morning of the race and said uh, somehow we've ended up in Bermondsey um could you tell us would we be able to watch the race from here and I said well you've got to be a little while I came through there and they were in the middle of the road on a traffic island and in all of those people I managed to find them it's so funny, though, because it's more difficult for you to see people in the crowd because you're going faster than I am. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the, I think that's true. But it's also the people around you and their, their barriers in there. So I think that's why we always say as well, put your name on your vest. Yeah, put your name um, on your vest. Because even if it's not your loved ones finding you and cheering you on, other people will do that. So put, that's a huge thing is, is put your name on your vest so people can support you and people can help you get through it. Just tell us, before we move on from, from you running, you know, almost as a, as a punter, if you like, in 2015. What, what, what was the overriding, the overwhelming emotion for you for the two hours, 36 minutes that it took you? <laughs> um, I think oh, it's, 
there were a lot of emotions that day. Um, I think for me, the whole week before was was full of emotion. Um, I had kind of I'd had the big foot surgery in August of 2012. Um, it was April of 2013 before I could uh, jog 100 meters, walk 400 meters, and kind of gradually build back into it. And it was painful for a long time. So I think it was only beginning of 2014 that I actually kind of voiced out loud a desire to to maybe run the London Marathon um, and then started talking about it with them uh, and planning ahead for 2015. And in my mind, it was all about my battle and my personal battle to finish my career on my terms and be able to, to run that marathon um, and kind of beat the foot injury and, and yeah, sign off doing what I always wanted to do, racing in the London Marathon, finish unfinished business. And I didn't think about how it was going to be actually in London. So I think when I then came in and I saw back page and front page of the Evening Standard, um, Nike Town, they did something big. And I started to think, okay, this is actually, this is something fairly big to other people as well as to just me. Um, and I think in some ways that helped me and in some ways that added a little, a little bit of pressure, but it certainly made it emotional. Um, and I think when you go into it knowing it's probably your last one, then you really are trying to bottle all of those memories and, and feelings. And even though my Achilles was killing me and I kind of wanted to get to the end, I didn't want to get to the end. I wanted it to, to, to last longer. Um, so all of those emotions, things made me cry. There was a big sign along the embankment as I came out of the, the tunnel after you've passed the Tower Hotel. Um, a big sign there saying, thank you for all of the memories. We're going to miss you. And that really made me kind of tear up. And then I think seeing my family at the end. So I was trying to to keep a lid on it as much as possible through the closing stages. But when I, I crossed the finish line, then it, it does all hit you. And then I had the added um, worry of the BBC helicopter as well. Because they had told me that... Well, they told Crammy beforehand that if the helicopter, if I could finish under two and a half hours, they could keep get it on TV because the helicopter would still be up. So I, of course, knew I was outside of two and a half hours and I'm running along the embankment and I can still see the helicopter. And I didn't know they'd put another one up. So I was worrying that if I didn't finish quickly, the helicopter might come down as well because it didn't have the fuel to last longer than two and a half hours. <laughs> Well, that would never have happened because they carry a reserve. But I know exactly what you're saying. Um, could you, can you, could you say then the tears that you experienced during that marathon? Because there have been other tears. Were they brand new tears? Tears like you you'd never felt before for different reasons. Yeah, they were just yeah, they were emotional ones. I think it's, it's like we always say: you don't realise how special something is when you're in it until it's kind of coming to the end of it. And there's probably a good reason for that, but at the high part of your career, when everything's going well and you're winning races all the time, you kind of feel like it's going to go on forever. Uh, and then you realise there's a point where it's not. And then that almost felt for me like it was a huge second chance, not to obviously be hugely competitive and, and close to winning the race, but just to be able to do it and to for me to win that battle over my body. It, it was really important to me. And I think then you realise just how lucky you've been to be a part, to have had the honour of running in and winning and setting a world record in something like the London Marathon. And then to be able to go back and experience it like that again. They are life experiences that are very, very special. And I think it was all of those emotions coming in as well. Yeah, and for everyone. So in your mind, in, in Radcliffe's world, would you say that you hobbled around the London Marathon in two hours 36? <laughs> um, 
I'd probably say I winged it a little bit. Um, I think there was a huge amount of, of mental um, resilience from all of the years of training and just being able to try and convince your body a little bit because certainly over the last, I think it was, a, well, I don't think my last 12 weeks was very much training at all. Um, and there was a, a good period where I wasn't able to, to run at all, a lot of cross-training. Um, and then kind of a couple of weeks before the race, I think I had something like 17 shockwave sessions on my Achilles. And I still have scars on there. So, um, yeah, I think there was a lot that I was just drawing on that reserve of training, mental and physical training that I'd done for years to get me through that. I love the fact you touched on cross-training there. Let's just talk about that for a second or two because cross-training kicks in and it's really useful and it doesn't have to be much, does it? You can do like a seven-minute hit workout, you know, on your days off. But, the, you know, anything helps. And if you put some strength in with those miles in your legs, a different kind of strength, you know, a, a bit of scaffolding, if you like. My God, that can help yeah. on the day, can't it? It can really, really help. I mean, the importance of, of strength training first off, even just if, if it's just 10 minutes of core training two or three times a week, that is really, really important. If you think of exactly like you said, like the scaffolding, that's holding your body strong through those closing stages. And that's really what happens in the, at the end of the marathon is everything starts to fatigue and that scaffolding starts to fall apart. And that's why you see people losing their form and not able to, to keep running. So the longer you can keep that scaffolding strong the better you can finish that marathon uh, and the stronger you will feel. So a little bit of preparation work in doing that really, really helps. And then if you can also add in some form of cross-training from a cardio perspective that isn't the impact. And again, going back to the shoes, that's where the shoes, I think, really come into their own because they guard against that and protect against that impact that just takes your body a little, takes a little bit out of your body and takes longer to recover from. But cross-training is essentially just doing that. It's training the heart and lungs, but not bashing your body against the pavement um, and giving you a bit of time off there. And you can train your upper body, you know, from the waist up. You can, If it gets stronger and you improve your core, you can almost give your legs a rest during the race, can't you? You can almost yeah. run from the waist up. You can, and you can, you can almost pull your legs through when they start to fatigue because of, uh, of that strength there. Uh, and it works in a kinetic chain your body so if you if you're able to to keep that form and, and keep that strength in your upper body that's going to help hold together and support your lower body as well i sometimes get, do a, an arms half a mile where the arms do all the work yeah no exactly and just just think about that and you can just sit down with uh, with bottles or something like that even just fill a couple of bottles with water uh, and run with those and and see if that will help just to build up a little bit of strength and rhythm. So we've talked about dips in the race. What about dips in training? Because when people are putting together the first 17-week training schedule for the first ever marathon, you know, they're so excited. We're all so excited. First three, four weeks aren't really that difficult. The long runs aren't that long. Uh, there's lots of walk runs, lots of shuffle jog runs. And then five or six weeks in, the novelty wears off. The long runs start to get more serious and you can get a mental dip. Um, I'm sure it's the same for you, or it was the same for you in your yeah. world. Any any super hacks to do with that? Um, sometimes plan in a little bit of a break to hit it then. Also, um, stepping stone races are, are really, really important to, to plan those in. They give you a little bit of a mental break from that training grind. They give you a gauge of how it's going and where you're at. And they also just give you that time because it's important to, to rest a little bit before them. So they give you a little bit of a built-in rest. Um, and a psychological change as well. 
So if you can build that in, that really helps. And then reward yourself for those. So give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back, buy yourself a new a new outfit to, for running in or a, a new pair of shoes or or something like that. But just take the time to, to measure off how it's going and to assess it and to give yourself, I don't know, a, an extra pack of donuts or something for having done well in that race. Those little things are important. And then the other thing is sometimes just changing up the routine. So even if it's just going away with your family, um, for, if it coincides with half term or something, and just changing the scenery that you're running in, that can... They always say, don't they, it changes sometimes as good as the rest. It can just re-energise your training and just exploring those new trails can just give a new lease of life to your training, which which helps. Okay, and I, th- I think we should touch on this because some people don't know whether to run with um, company or, or run solo. I prefer to run solo, although I have now started running with my wife at weekends and we really like it. It's just that she was so much faster than me. I used to feel so guilty, but she doesn't mind slowing down now, which is great. And uh, we go on, <laughs> it's good, it's so cool. And we go on trails. So we walk up anything that's, you know, literally one degree or 180 degrees, um, you know, up from the horizontal, we walk, um, which is a form of cross training. And then everything else, we shuffle, run, or jog, which is absolutely fantastic. But you can pick the wrong company can't you and it's very important to 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 have people who have similar aspirations to you maybe some people who push you a little bit maybe some people who calm you down a little bit but you don't want to you don't want somebody who's going to really disrupt your ruin your 17 weeks worth of training and that can you and you've got to be really strict about that i think yeah you have and i think that is is one place where you have to be you have to be selfish and it it is it's part of a team it's a team you're building around yourself and in any team whether it's at work or whether it's in the family or whether it's when you're running you need to be able to rely on your team so you need to be able to to be there for them and to lean on them when you need that and if you're not getting that from them then you you kind of need to change that so there are different parts of training and there may even be different training partners that you have for different yeah. runs there may be someone you like running with for a harder run and that you won't run with for an easy run because they're just not capable of running easy and they make you run too fast. So you need to to learn to make that call selfishly, but it's not selfishly because everybody needs to to do that. And kind of if they're good friends and good training partners, they will understand that. Yeah. And if they don't understand, um, they're not good friends. <laughs> so you've done yourself another way. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> they're not worth it anyway. <laughs> Paul, I think we're just about done. Let's just fast forward again to to marathon eve which is just you know if you do your training everybody listen to this paul will tell you if you do this training plan if you adhere to it as much as you can you can miss the odd day you can even miss a week if you have to if you get injured but if you can literally finish as many training sessions as is humanly possible for you you will be ready on the day and your race day should be a celebration of the challenge of Mm -hmm. training as opposed to a challenge that um that proves your training to, to have been right. But the day before, if you are in good shape and you are fresh to the line and you've tapered properly and you've not done any maranoia sort of panic cramming uh, running, um, then that day before is so special. But the Radcliffe race eve routine can involve and has involved, you know what I'm going to say now, don't you, Paula? <laughs> the ice bath. It has in the past involved half a Guinness. Oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, it can do, or a glass of wine, yeah, it can do. I think, uh, again, if if you're used to that in the routine um, and it's nothing that's going to be in excess or affecting your sleeping or your digestion, then it's fine. I think it's whatever keeps you relaxed and whatever you're used to doing. And the big thing to remember 
the night before the marathon is that nobody's build-up is perfect and what you need to focus and think back on are the things that have gone well in the build-up and not the things that you haven't done and you haven't been able to do because there will always be those little training sessions that you haven't done, but there will also be those ones that have gone so very, very well and they're the ones that you need to think on and rely on and just really think a bit about it. Like you said, this is the party at the end of all the training. So all of the hard work's been done and this is just go in and enjoy it and just put everything into it and get everything back out of it yeah and the more boxes you you can tick in week one of your training the less pressure on week two and the the more boxes you tick in week two the less pressure on week three and you've got to keep that going you don't want to be playing catch up on weeks like 12 13 14 no you don't but there is also that room for maneuver so you don't want to be stressing and pushing to to tick those boxes in week three if you can just delay them to week four or five and still get them done so it's also about striking that balance and if your body's really crying out for a rest or if you've got a lot on at work or something just comes up unexpectedly in the family it's okay to just take take it back for a week um, and focus on getting yourself ready to be able to attack it properly next time so don't stress about those those lost times either because sometimes taking a few days early on is better than spending weeks off later yeah that's because uh, that's why we made this one 17 weeks because my first plan with martin back in 2015 was 17 weeks and now the popular go-to is a 16 week plan but we put an extra week in there just in case you know a, a little mm-hmm. bit of a lifeboat there yeah and i think that helps to even if you don't you need to use it just knowing that it's there and sometimes just building it in as well as a rest and refresh recharge in the middle of the training if you haven't used it to that point is a good idea Okay, so when I was thinking bar before Guinness and wine, you said ice bath. And that's the difference. Therein lies the difference between Radcliffe and Evans. So tell us about the ice bath. So the ice bath, I started actually doing it at the World Championships in 1993, which were my first World Championships as a, as a senior athlete. I was running 3,000 metres. And I learned from another girl on the team that Sonia O'Sullivan, who was the big favourite, um, always took an ice bath the night before a race. So I thought, right, I'm going to try it. So I did and I ran well and then I just carried on doing it ever since. And I always used it in training as a recovery tool from hard training sessions uh, and that really helps. But I actually found that it also helped to, to stimulate and at the same time also relax my muscles before I went to bed the night before a big race. So I did have a hot shower afterwards. So a cold bath and then a hot shower. Okay, how much of, how much of Wim Hof do you have in you? What's your longest time in the ice bath? Um, it's 10 to 15 minutes. Does it get any easier or is it always hard? It's easier if you keep a jumper on and take a cup of tea in with you. (laughs) Are you serious? Seriously, it's only the bottom (laughs) half that needs to be iced. That's so funny. Oh, my God. How's your running been this year? Uh, It's been good. It's been been a lifeline, really, I think. Uh, I think for a lot of people, and that's why we've seen a huge growth, haven't we, in in people getting out and running during this pandemic because I think it's just a little bit of normality, a little bit of just a pick-me-up psychologically and and thinking time, just so many things. So I think if I hadn't had that over the last year or so, it would have been a lot, lot harder to to get through. So, yeah, it's going well. It's not timed. It's just me going out and just running. And I've started exploring a lot of new trails as well. I was going to say, the the trails around where you live look like they're in California. I know, I heard that. It's not California. On that video, they are, um, that's in the Pyrenees, in Fonhamer. But there are a lot of trails out at the back of Monaco as well, which I've been really enjoying exploring. And for people who are in the middle of their training or three weeks in or three weeks out to race day itself, whatever you do, don't stop because 
running and completing a marathon and becoming a marathoner it will change your life forever it will it's it's fantastic it's 17 weeks of prep that you didn't need to do that you have done and that regime and that organization and the front loading of all your psychological strategic and, and physical training bases you will take forward for the rest of your life so useful isn't it paula it is, it is. And I think just that's exactly it, just keeping your eyes focused on that prize, even if you write it on top of your mirror. Um, so every day when you're brushing your teeth, you look up and you see what it is that you're aiming for. That will keep you going on that, that race day. And every single person gets to that finish line having achieved something um, and grown as a person through that race. And I think keep your eyes focused on that. Get ready to give yourself that huge pat on the back at the end. And if you're struggling for motivation, maybe look on get to the finish line of a marathon or look back at videos because it is one of the most emotional places to be is to stand at the finish line of something like the London Marathon and see that achievement and recognition of that achievement dawning on people's faces as they cross that finish line and realise that they've done it. Yeah, we say in the book that the two biggest things for motivation, motivation is a dodgy word anyway, because, you know, motivation is brilliant when it's there, but it comes so quickly and it leaves you without any advance warning, is try and pick a course to run for that is going to take you to a higher level of, of service. And, you know, um, you're running for yourself initially, but then maybe your reason is overtaken you know, for running for a better cause or a, a higher purpose, you know, or for yeah. people who can't run. And then as well as 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 picking that, you know, um, you run for your family, you can have little mantras, you can have, you can run a mile for particular different people, you can dedicate your last five miles to people who are no longer here, you know, whatever it takes to, to get you on the start line and then over the finish line. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think those are really, really important. You're running for yourself, but you're running for so many different reasons. And those are the things that will keep you going over those final tough stages. Oh, Paula, it's been so fantastic to talk to you. This is such a cool thing uh, for me to be able to revisit our conversation from six years ago. Now with, with a, a few very slow shuffling marathon miles under my belt, but um, it is a great honour and it's such a privilege and a pleasure. Oh, no, it's brilliant. And we're going to be racing the Evans versus the Locks at um, Rumfest, aren't we? And the family's on track there. Oh, don't you worry about that. Rumfest is absolutely <laughs> ready to go and it's going to be coupled now uh, with Carfest South, which is even better. So we'll have um, horsepower from piston engines and leg power and just great positive energy all round. For London itself, are you commentating again this year? Um, I hope so. Yes, everything's been really difficult with being able to to get uh, into the UK and commentate recently. But yes, hopefully by then things will be back to normal and I will be there. All right, Paula. Anything else you'd like to say? Anything else people should know before we go? I don't think so. I think just uh, a huge good luck. And I think like you said earlier in, uh, in the recording, um, this year is going to be an extra special one, not just in terms of size, but I think it's going to be a, a show of strength for, for humanity and for running humanity um, that we're kind of coming out of this pandemic and putting on this biggest ever race virtually and in place. So it's going to be a big carnival this year. And I always go to the same pub, Paula, in Primrose Hill after every London marathon and uh, it's pints and pizzas. What's the best post-marathon celebration you've experienced? <laughs> um, uh, I think most of them... I'm trying to think what, what they were. Champagne and a big bowl of pasta. Champagne and chips is a good one. <laughs>
Okay. Um, and then a lot of chocolate. Loads of chocolate. All the chocolate. Uh-huh. All the chocolate. Paula, thanks for your time. As always, you've been more than generous. Thank you. Good to chat to you. Take care. How amazing is that lady? The one, the only, Paula Radcliffe, star of this super special running edition of How to Wow, brought to you with my new book, 119 Days to Go, How to Train for and Smash Your First Marathon. Out now, pick up a copy, pick a marathon, turn to day one and get started and we'll see you on that start line. Plus, this episode was also sponsored by Better You, one of the world's most innovative natural health companies specialising in the supplementation of essential key nutrients lost through our dramatically changing diet and lifestyle. And how to wow listeners that you can receive 20% off their magnesium range by visiting betteryou.com slash wow. That's betteryou.com slash wow and entering the code wow at the checkout. And that's it for now from How to Wow. If you've liked this episode, please share on social media and rate and review. If you know anyone who remotely likes running, please get them to have a listen. They'll thank you for it. Who knows how? <laughs>